dream of a classroom where learning is natural? Can we inspire students to lifelong learning? What exactly is the purpose of an education? Inspiring students to be curious, independent, creative, innovative, deep thinking, confident, proactive, collaborative, determined, educated. Rise to the challenge of changing the world. This is teaching. This is learning. This is who we are. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast. Ann Miller, President of 48 Days LLC, specializes in creative thinking for increased personal and business success. He believes meaningful work blends our natural skills and abilities, our unique personality traits, and our dreams and passions. He is active in helping individuals redirect careers, evaluating new income sources, and achieving balanced living. Dan is the author of the New York Times best-selling 48 Days to the Work You Love, No More Dreaded Mondays, and Wisdom Meets Passion. If you've ever buried your dreams in an attempt to be practical or realistic, Dan believes embracing those very dreams is the most practical way to enjoy life and achieve success. In his mind, a clear sense of direction can help us become all we were meant to be. For our listeners, I first met Dan through a friend who had given me a copy of his 48 Days of the Work You Love. I was only a few chapters in when I realized that this was a dangerous book and that it might change my life forever. And that's how a year later I found myself seeking Dan's advice when our business was floundering after a couple of nasty bumps. At that time, I wasn't sure what direction to take our young startup, and Dan helped me to discover uh, that what is my deepest passion, where my skills are, and how to start putting an economic model around our core ideas. And since then, we've zeroed into our mission, which is to inspire a generation of kids to be tinkerers, explorers, innovators, and deep thinkers by giving them the tools they need to create, invent, and become world changers. So I'd actually like to begin by thanking you, Dan, for helping Tabletop Inventing get started in the right direction. Well, thanks. Golly, I never get tired of hearing those kind of stories. How something I said or wrote, you know, helped inspire somebody like you to release the greatest things that are waiting to be unfolded. Your podcast and the book and the website, the online community, all of those things definitely helped us get started in the right direction. Let's just jump right in then. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you do at 48 Days? Absolutely. You know, I was raised on a farm, so I had a lot of hands-on experience, a little bit of plumbing, carpentry, electrical mechanics, and all those things that I think are wonderful experiences to have as a child. But I very quickly uh, thought, you know, I'll bet there's work that I could do that would make so I would not have to be up at 5.30 in the morning milking Holstein cows or throwing hay bales in the heat of the summer. <laughs> and so I've been on a lifelong journey of just finding or creating work that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable. I don't believe that that's just one thing. I think that can be a variety of things, and it certainly has been for me through my own kind of work path. But for the last 15 years now, I've had this wonderful pleasure of working with people who are going through career transitions. People are trying to figure out really what their best gifts are and how to put legs on that. A lot of creative people who have ideas, but they're concerned that having a creative idea, you know, they can't make any money. And I've, again, have had the pleasure of helping people like that figure out how to do what they love and have an economic model for doing it profitably. 
So that's what I do at this point. I'm a writer, speaker, coach, all around that topic of how to find your best talent and then create daily work that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable. Wow. So you must have an opportunity to speak to quite a few people through the course of a given day or a given week. What gives you the most pleasure in in the advice that you give to people? Well, that's a great question because when I first started on this path, you know, I worked with people doing resumes and job search and interview questions and salary negotiation processes. But I really haven't done that in quite a long time because I found very quickly that my sweet spot is helping people who need a very entrepreneurial, very creative, very non-traditional kind of solution. And by that I mean I have worked with a lot of physicians, attorneys, dentists, pastors, people who by virtue of their education feel trapped in what they're doing, and yet they're not. But we can't take a dentist who says, I don't want to do this anymore, and just polish your resume and go get another job where they're going to make the kind of money they're used to making. So it requires a creative solution. Those are the connections that energize me. Those are what get me up in the morning, is working with people in those situations and coming up with creative opportunities for them that they may not have seen otherwise. I kind of come alongside somebody and just help them see with new eyes in most situations. Not to add something that's never been done before, never thought of before, but to help them see what's already available to them. They just look at it a little differently. That's fantastic. How long have you been doing this? About 15 years that I've been doing this as my full-time focus. You know, it kind of snuck up on me. It wasn't like I sat down when I was 18 and said, I want to be a writer, speaker, coach. I mean, that never happened along the path at all. It was only when I was about 45 years old that some things kind of came together. The opportunity presented itself. People started asking me for coaching, asking me for materials to help them in this process, and it's just simply been in responding to what people are asking for that I've found this amazing opportunity. So over the past 15 years, uh, can you give us a broad strokes overview of the differences you've seen in the job market between then and now? Sure. There have been some major changes. I mean, one of those being we've moved from production work to knowledge work. That's pretty easy to understand. If we go back a generation, how many people worked in factories and worked at General Motors on the assembly line? Well, those jobs have pretty well disappeared. There's not a whole lot of that going on anymore. Most of the things that people do today are knowledge work. Now, that works to the advantage of everybody involved, in my opinion. It can be seen as a challenge for employers because if they have somebody working in production work, when that person goes home at night, guess who keeps the means of production? The boss, the employer keeps the means of production. When you're doing knowledge work, things like we do today, whether that's data input or writing or computer programming, you take the means of production with you because it's between your own two ears. So it means we're a much more mobile workforce. People come and go. The old idea of finding a job with the right company, staying there 30 years and getting a gold watch, I mean, that's gone forever. It's gone. Not going to exist anymore. So people can move through and up in their career, even if they're changing companies every two years. I mean, the average is about 2.2 years at this point. So that's a very different work environment. 
We're also seeing the opportunity for people to work from a distance. If I need computer programming done or graphic design or data input, it really doesn't matter if the person doing that is in the cubicle next to me, across town, or on the other side of the world. So it's flattened the workforce in many ways, made it very competitive, but in a positive way. I mean, it works both ways. There, there will be people competing for jobs in your hometown who don't live in the continental United States, but by the same token, you can compete for providing work for companies that are not in the same country in which you live as well. So I was thinking about that as you said that, and just wanted to dive into that a little bit deeper, because that's one of the big fears you know, from outsourcing is that, you know, jobs are going to India and it's easy to replace us if it's in India. How does the average person entering the workforce these days navigate that? Well, there's been a lot more leveling than what we may be aware of. I mean, 15 years ago, the average income in the United States was 20 times what it was in China. Today, it's less than five times greater a lot of countries that we considered developing countries have gone through massive transformation in the last 15 or 20 years. The only continent, really, that has not is Africa. And there are a lot of reasons for that. But most of the other countries, so if it's you know, the Asian countries, I mean, they've all developed a lot. So it's not like there's a big disadvantage. I mean, there are a lot of companies here in the United States who outsourced work to, like India, as you mentioned, or Taiwan, or you know, Indonesia, places like that. But more of those companies are pulling that work back in because there's not really the price differential in terms of getting competent work done. So people here or there, what it really comes down to is being able to deliver quality work. The old days of having an advantage because you live in the town where they have a position to fill, that's gone. You really have to take responsibility for producing results. It's not a matter of just location or geography, but it comes back to taking personal responsibility for doing quality work. And if you do that, there are opportunities all around us. So for the new person entering the job force then, uh, how do they position themselves in this type of a market? Well, the first thing is to be extremely clear on what it is that you do that has value. I mean, there's a whole lot of very, very disappointed college graduates out there because they lead with the fact that they have a degree. And the companies are saying, oh, you have a master's in English lit. Whoop-de-doo. What can you do for us? <laughs> you know, it just, they aren't impressed with just having a degree. I mean, that shows us, yes, that a person has discipline. They were able to kind of hang in there for a while. But it doesn't really show us much more than that in terms of marketable skills. So companies are saying, show us what you can do. Show us what you've done in the last six months. We'd rather have that conversation with you than just see that, in fact, you have a degree like thousands and thousands of other people do. And that's the missing piece for not only people starting in the workplace, but people who have been in the workplace a lot of times, is that they simply don't understand what their marketable skills are. They're looking for a job, and that's a very weak position in today's marketplace. Nobody's going to give you a job just because you need a job. You're going to get an opportunity because you can show your unique value to that company or organization. So from your experience, um, you know, looking out across the, the people that you interact with, how much does the average student really understand about their marketable skills when they exit college or high school these days? 
very, very little. We do a horrible job of preparing students to understand how to make themselves marketable, both in terms of the skills that they have and in terms of how to present themselves personally. I was in Taco Bell recently, Steve, and as I'm prone to do frequently with my fine culinary habits, <laughs> and young kid walked in and asked to speak to the manager. He had stopped in the day before and got an application but hadn't talked to anybody. He filled it out, came back, and asked to speak to the manager. She came out, sat down. I was within earshot of the conversation. In four minutes, she said, can you start tomorrow? She went back to the back to get some more paperwork, and I asked this kid, I said, did that really just happen? Is that the first time you met her? You had a four-minute conversation, and she wants you to start tomorrow. He says, yeah, man. You know, I moved to town two days ago. Got to get a job to stay here. He left. I talked to the manager. I said, can you help me understand why you hired this young guy? Walked in here, shorts on, tattoos down his arms and legs, ringing his nose. You didn't do, obviously, do any kind of a background check at all. No references, no credit history, nothing. You hired him on the spot. Tell me why you did that. She said, because he looked me straight in the eye. He was respectful. It was, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. I asked him if he could take the ring out. He said, yes, he'd be happy to. She says, that's really all I needed. She said, I need people who present that well personally. We can teach them what they need to know. And I thought, how interesting. Just having good personal skills still opens the door more than you could possibly imagine. Interesting. Well, I wanted to go back a little bit in our conversation. You were talking a little bit about flattening of the workplace, and I wanted to ask a question about how the Internet has affected this, because we now live in an age where Wikipedia can improve our IQ by 20 points. In this environment, what are employees really looking for in new applicants? Well, that's a great question to frame it like that, because we used to think that education meant that we had more information. I mean, when you think about it, you go back to when I grew up in a little tiny town, we didn't have TV, didn't have radio. So the source of information was that red brick school building in town. They had the information. For me to get information, I had to go there. Now, it would have even been a big deal if we had had a set of encyclopedias because they have a lot of information. We couldn't afford a set of encyclopedias. So, again, the school was a source of information, and that's what education was, getting access to that information. Well, now we can go to Nairobi, Kenya, in Africa, and talk to the kids on the street. They've all got smartphones. They have access to any kind of information that the world has ever known. It's right there at their fingertips. That has been a dramatic disruptive change in what we thought education was all about. No longer do those red brick buildings have a captive hold on that information. Anybody has access to it. So that has changed education dramatically. And companies are saying anybody can use Google. Anybody, if we want to know, right now there's a lot happening in the Ukraine. What's the capital of the Ukraine? Well, we don't have to have a 50-year-old memorize that. With a smartphone, you can find that in eight seconds and know exactly what it is. So access to information is available to anybody. So what we have to have are marketable skills. What is it that you can do that has unique value? 
other than just being a repository for information. I mean, you may win on who wants to be a millionaire Jeopardy. That has no value in the workplace today. There has to be something else. What is it that you do that very few people are able to do? And the more you can back that up, show that, the more marketable you're going to be. So in a practical sense, in a, let's say in an education setting, what would, in your opinion, be the best way for students to start exploring what their marketable skills are? Just by getting in the game. I mean, I, I wrote a book last year, Steve, called Wisdom Meets Passion. And I talked to lots and lots of people who say, well, I just don't know what my passion is. And they think that if they just go sit on a stump somewhere that, you know, they're going to get that bolt of lightning. They'll know what their passion is and then what they're going to do. You know, passion in that way is more developed than it is discovered. So my encouragement is get in the game. I don't care if you get that job at Taco Bell or you're a greeter at Walmart or you get a job with Apple or Yahoo, you know, anything. Just get in the game because those first few years of work experience, the primary purpose is not to develop a career path from which there's no escape. It's just to help in the process of clarity. We see again and again and again somebody who's 35 or 40 or 45 or even 50 who has an opportunity to take a fresh look again at who they are, where they're going, how they're going to get there, and they realign. It's a constant process of realigning. This is, is not a process of figuring out one time and you're finished. Not at all. It's an ongoing journey. And the things you're a candidate for now, you were not a candidate for 10 years ago or five years ago. There are going to be opportunities in the workplace five years from now that we couldn't even describe today. So we can't just keep doing the same things we're doing. It's a constant process of reassessing, looking at new opportunities. The people who continue that process of navigation well have opportunities all around them. People who get stuck and hope that things will stay the same are going to be disappointed. Wow. As an educator or a high school counselor, how would you advise them to to speak to students about uh, career choices and marketable skills and finding their passion? I would, for one, relieve the pressure of having to make a decision that you're going to have to live with for four years. That's unrealistic. I recently worked with a gentleman who was 44 years old, and one of his opening comments to me was, Dan, I'm tired of living my life based on the decisions that were made by an 18-year-old. I thought, that's a pretty interesting <laughs> way to frame it, and a healthy way to frame it. So yeah, let's take the pressure off this idea of you have to choose a career path, and boom, that's it. And I had a young guy one time I talked to who had a degree in criminal justice. And I said, oh, wow, that's interesting. How do you happen to choose that? He said, on the first day of college, we were in this big auditorium, and they said, if you're going into accounting, follow this lady down the hall. If you're going into architecture, follow this lady. They were going down alphabetically. I knew I had to pick something. I closed my eyes and pointed my finger. Criminal justice, here I come. That was the forethought. That was the planning process wow. determined a degree that he had. And that's okay. I mean, we know that 10 years after graduation, 80% of college graduates working in something totally unrelated to their college degree. 
That's okay, because again, that shouldn't be the only determinant of how you spend the next 30 years of your life. It's just part of the process of clarification, and you have plenty of opportunity to make realignment and readjustments as you go along. So you probably have the opportunity to know lots of entrepreneurs. So if if you were to ask an entrepreneur if they're doing something now related to what they were thinking about at 18, how many of them would say yes? Assuming that entrepreneur is like 40 or 45 at this point? Yeah, something like that. It would be totally unexpected if any of them said I'm doing now what I was thinking about doing when I was 18 years old. The process of entrepreneurship almost by definition means that you continue to explore and try new things. That's what entrepreneurs do. You don't have somebody who, wow, just gets out of the gate, one thing, and then they just do that. I mean, even these these kids that we see that have you know, just out-of-the-park kind of success, you know, the kid who just developed the Oculus virtual reality classes, well, that means that he has the skills to take parts, components, put them together in an unusual way. He He's not locked in to just doing things in the virtual reality world. He's a developer. He's a thinker. He sees things that other people don't see. That can open the possibilities. You know, he could be develop a, a scientific product that would help with cures for cancer. I mean, that, that's a it's a thinking process. It's not that they're doing one thing. One one of the things Steve, that drives me nuts is when we hear these statistics: you know, four out of five businesses fail in the first five years. That's a bunch of baloney. What what they're looking at is. A guy starts a little landscaping company. Well, four years into it, yeah, he's doing pretty well. But he says, wow, it's really easy to get into this business. There's not a real uniqueness to what I do. There's a lot of players here. What could I do that would take me in a more specific direction? And so he comes to see Dan Miller, and Dan Miller says, wow, you've got clients who have a lot of discretionary income. They would be candidates for water features and gazebos and stamped concrete. So all of a sudden, that little landscaping business is gone because that entrepreneur has moved into something more productive, more profitable. But statistically, the government looks at that, oh, there's another business, you know, out of business. Well, that's nuts. Entrepreneurs don't fail nearly as much as people think. They just move on to new things, new, more exciting, more profitable. And that's a healthy, uh, you know, healthy process any way we look at it. So as a newly graduating high school senior, and this is the appropriate time of year to think about it because we've actually got a senior um, graduating out of our house this evening, um, how do they cultivate this skill of looking at their life and adapting and growing every day and instead of seeing education as a you know one thing that happens during high school and one thing that happens during college and then you know and then after that you work for the rest of your life how, how do you help the student overcome that view? We need to help them have continuing opportunities to learn and grow. And that's really the key. If somebody stops learning, they're dead in the water. And it doesn't matter if they just got a JD after their name or a DDS or an MD. If they stop learning, they're going to start falling behind immediately. We have to reframe with our children what we describe as education. I mean, my own son, and congratulations, incidentally, on having a son just finishing high school. That's awesome. What a what a great you know, transition point, new chapter, no, no matter what. When my oldest son 
was just finishing school, high school, we allowed him to move to Boulder, Colorado. Technically, before his graduation occurred, but we worked that out, so he got a diploma, even though he didn't walk the line. But he went to Boulder because he started training with the U.S. Olympic team as a bicycle racer, and then went on to race in Europe. He lived in Amsterdam for a couple of years, raced with the Dutch national team. And during that period of time, people knowing that I'd spent a lot of time in the academic system, both learning and teaching, they'd ask me, you know, Dan, aren't you concerned that Kevin's not in college? I said, well, you know, he may choose to go to college someday, but right now he's too busy getting an education. Well, they always got that, you know, deer in the headlights look. What do you mean? I mean, now think about it. What is more of an education? Having a child who lives internationally, learning to know cultures around the world, competing, learning the discipline of a competitive sport, all the things that go with that, or having a kid sit his butt in a chair and regurgitate what's in a textbook. I mean, I would hope that we could understand education takes place in many ways. One of those may be sitting in the classroom but it's certainly not the exclusive way to get an education at all. So as parents, we want to continue to help our children understand what a real education is, the power of that being an ongoing process, no matter what degree or lack of degrees they have behind their name. So it sounds like uh, your oldest son took some time to follow, his, to hone his passion and his skills and that this has been an ongoing journey for him. And this is, kind, this is a, a hobby or sort of for me. Um, are you familiar with Maker Education? Yes. So in Maker Education, one of the one of the key points that we like to bring up is this idea that when you build something, it helps you learn about the world around you, and that the, the process of building something gives you real-time feedback. Well, one of the important lessons we continue to call out to teachers and students through this process is that the first design you make is not that good. I mean, sometimes it is. Sometimes you really get lucky, and the first time you design something, it works perfect right out of the gate. But overall, the experience that we have with students, with ourselves, and with life in general, is that the first time we try something, we're not that good. I mean, the first time a child starts to walk, you know, they're not that good. The first time we build, you know, our first kite or our first 3D design or our first uh, Arduino project, it's so-so, and sometimes it doesn't even work at all. And there's this iterative process. Do you feel that this process in maker education can have a positive impact on the skills and thinking that students can acquire? Oh, major, major, major. I mean, I, it breaks my heart to see kids coming out of school today who were protected by their parents from ever really engaging in life, ever having a lemonade stand or having a part-time job. They were just focused on their education, getting a great SAT score, and so now we spit them out at 22 years old with a college degree, and they can't change a tire on their own car. I mean, it breaks my heart to, to see kids who have such limited practical skills. I mean, they don't know how to, to make an omelet in the kitchen or how to repair a leaky faucet, you know, or how to get the lawnmower started when it coughs a couple times. I mean, <laughs> those are just life skills. Those are not things where we have to get out of this idea that there's only one area that we develop, you know, and that's our career, and that's it. I mean, I think it's sad to see an attorney 
who can handle this dispositions and depositions and you know be in the courtroom, but you know doesn't know how to teach his son to hit a ball. I mean, give me a break. So, I when my second son, who was one of those who was given every label that traditional academic organizations love to give kids who don't stay neatly inside the line. So he was ADD, ADHD, dyslexic, bipolar, and all those wonderful terms. So we pulled him out of school and and schooled him ourselves. When he was 14, I bought a 1968 Volkswagen Carmen Ghia. We pulled it into the garage, and again, he was 14 years old. We pulled it into the garage. We pulled the engine out. We worked on the engine. We pulled all the glass out, all the carpet, the dash. We put new rubber around all the glass, new carpet in, rebuilt the engine, put it back in. We sanded the body, painted it ourselves, painted a Porsche Guards red. Now think about what I just described. He learned about mechanics. He learned about physics. He learned about electrical systems. He learned about internal combustion. He learned about a ton of things in a way that was appropriate for him to learn, and none of those would have been possible had we forced him to sit in a seat and read a book about those very same things. I mean, those things, I mean, we've lost the value of, you know, we, we no longer have, you know, home ec and shop class and music. Those things somehow have been pushed aside for this cerebral intellectual pursuit that ends up leaving people half alive. Wow. So how is your son using those skills now? I mean, you've had the chance to look very deeply and closely at his life and as he's progressed through. So those experiences of, uh, you know, working on the Carmen Ghia and having that practical hands-on experience with life at that early age, how, how do you think that has affected where he is right now? Well... My son happens to be home here in Franklin, Tennessee right now. Currently, he and his wife and baby live in Nairobi, Kenya. They're getting ready to move to Brazil, to an island just off the southern coast of Brazil called Florinopolis. They're moving there in a couple months. They're the kind of kids you can drop in any city in the world, and in 24 hours, they'll have a place to live. They'll have a, a way to make money and they'll be conversing in the local language. I mean, those are the things that he's prepared to do because of the kind of background that he had. Now, what he did, he went to Africa nine years ago, and he started working with the most marginalized people there, prostitutes on the streets, helping to build micro-enterprises to provide them decent income. He's become a liaison for other organizations in Africa and in other countries as well, in other continents as well, like um, the Bill Clinton Foundation and the work that Rick Warren from Saddleback is doing. Jared has been a liaison for them to help them relate to the culture in a realistic way rather than the uh, faulty way that a lot of American humanitarian aid is done there. But he's become a, a, a voice for how to build microenterprises. Now, this is an interesting feature in that he comes back here to Nashville, and he is booked, solid speaking, at like Vanderbilt Masters, their MBA program, Masters of Administration program. He speaks to them. They send interns over to Africa to work under his guidance 
in fully accredited parts of their master's program. Now, that's pretty ironic because Jared has never spent a day in college, uh, never had any interest in that, would not be a good fit for it, but now he's teaching students at the master's level and speaking in universities around the country. That's the power of understanding something that really has legs on it, something that really has value. But at this point, he has a branding and marketing company. So he helps major brands like Coca-Cola and others position themselves with local cultures in a way that really gives their brand value. He's paid enormous amounts of money to do that very thing. So here's a kid, you know, hard time in school, never went to college, and he's got this international kind of voice for branding and marketing, can go anywhere in the world, is in high demand as a consultant in those areas. So that's what I prepared him for. And I have no idea where he'll be 10 years from now. I mean, but he has the ability to land on his feet anywhere and thrive personally and financially. All right. So this just begs the question in this context. So what, in this context, what is an education? It is having information, but more importantly, knowing how to apply it in a meaningful way. Having information is fine, but how can you make a company more profitable? You know, how can you define what it is that you do that's going to engage your passion, your talent, but also have an economic model? You know, how can you go to Africa and work with the most disadvantaged people in the world without having to just come back to Franklin, Tennessee and hold your hand out for money from the rich people who live here? That's not a good model. Figure it out. Come up with solutions that other people don't see. Create social entrepreneurship kind of ideas. People who have the ability to do those things, I would consider educated. Wow. Well, that fits my experience um, working in uh, working in a lab and in research uh, for quite a few years. I mean, whenever we would have someone apply for a position or work with us, I I found that it wasn't actually the number of letters after their name or the um, even the number of years that they had been doing anything in particular. It was it really boiled back down to whether or not they had a lot of different experiences that they could apply to the problems that we had and. That has seems to have something to do with the idea that life is a lot more complex than it seems in the surface. You know, as a scientist, I love to boil things down to one key point, you know, so you have, you know, one input and one output. But the truth is, is that in life, there is no such thing as a one input, a one output situation. That just doesn't occur. And because there's lots of inputs and lots of outputs, really the only way to, to learn how to do something is to try it and to iteratively you know, get a little closer to the solution. It sounds like, you know, that's what your son has been doing over the last few years. Absolutely. And another thing that drives scientists and mathematicians and accountants crazy is the idea of one, one equals three. But you know, and I know, that many times that's true. It's not just a neat formula. Sometimes the things that happen and have we have as possibilities defy science and mathematical knowledge even, and that idea of one plus one equals three, wow. I mean, when you and I get together and we both have an idea, what we come up with is more than the, just the sum of 
what we each brought to the table. There's that synergy to go beyond that. Those are the kind of things that that just open, blow the doors off of opportunities and give us new ideas that we could not have even thought about four or five years ago. Wow. Yeah, that's definitely true. So looking back over our conversation here, how do you think students who learn to build and invent new things, what kind of advantages do they have over students whose primary learning uh, makes them uh, proficient at passing an SAT test, for instance? <laughs> well, I just think they have such a distinct advantage. I mean, my granddaughter, one of my granddaughters, six years old, recently decided she wanted her own camera. Well, mom and dad happen to have one that they no longer use with the iPhones the way they are. Most of us just use the iPhones, but they had a, a nice little digital camera. But instead of just giving it to their six-year-old, they said, no, it's $25. What are you going to do to come up with $25? We <laughs> so helped her, obviously. We helped her come up with ideas, and she ultimately decided she was going to make poppy seed muffins, and she was going to come to her papa's live events that we do here at the sanctuary and sell those. She made her own sign. She had a little Victorian dress on with an apron and a hat and a basket for her muffins, but she made her own little sign and sets up outside the live events that we do here. Now, granted, we have a pretty captive audience, and they're pretty generous with tips, but what do you think it means to her to have that camera now as compared to just having mom and dad say, well, sure, we'll get it for you. We'll go to Walmart and write a check for it. We'll just give you this. I mean, they already had it, and they still said, no, it's $25. But the process of her figuring out a solution for that, a way to do something that has real market value where people are willing to exchange money, is a skill that we need to be teaching our kids. It's not just about materialism. It's not just about being egocentric or greedy or anything. It's about the way the world works. And if we don't teach kids that early on, we really do them a disservice. Wow. That fits right in with something that we have seen time and time again in the classes that we do with uh, teens, with our maker education classes. Whenever a student actually builds something, there's there's a much higher engagement and excitement when they build something and it works even if it's a little clunky than they have for instance when they you know beat their low, you know their their uh resident iPhone game or you know some other game that they had when they build something there's that there's a deep sense of pride that hey look what I did this is really cool and it sounds like that's what your granddaughter had that same experience absolutely and that opens the door for a world of opportunities, you know, that other kids may miss. You know, she's going to think differently if she wants a TV in her room or she wants a bicycle. And those are skills that have real value. And to me, that's a real part of education, <clears throat> not just her ability to figure out the square root of 387. Wow. Well, we have uh, just about run our time course here, so do you have any last gems of advice for uh, teens or teachers uh, preparing for the current economy? Sure. You know, for teenagers, I'm very patient. Knowing that those first years of work experience are very valuable, and as I mentioned earlier, 
primarily because it helps in the process of clarification. A lot of times when I see somebody 35 years old and they describe their work experience, what they're most clear on is now they know what they don't want to do. That's valuable. That probably can't be gotten any other way than just getting in the game and doing that. But I'm very patient in those early years of a career. I mean, a lot of times we have parents call us, you know, oh, my gosh, my son is 22, just graduated from college, doesn't know what he wants to do yet. You know, can you help him? Oh, my daughter is 23. She's had six different jobs in the last two years. You know, can you help her get on track? And I used to say, yeah, no problem. Have him call me in 10 years. I really believe that those early years, you know, we ought to give students a lot of latitude and not feeling forced to define the one right thing, but to be engaged, to be very actively involved in doing things. I think every student that's going to college ought to be working at the same time. I mean, I don't care if you get a B plus instead of an A minus. I think there's enough value in working while you're doing it. For one thing, I think they ought to be helping to fund that privilege of being in college. It shouldn't be a free ride from anybody. That's that's a topic for another day, probably. But that's that's my advice. You know, teenagers, yeah, get in the game, have fun, explore. It'll help you ten years from now to be much clearer on what it is that you really want to do. Wow, Dan, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to speak with us today. Um, as we wrap things up, uh, tell our listeners how they can uh, keep in touch with you. Sure, absolutely. Thanks. 48 days is kind of our brand, and 48 days comes from my belief that that's an adequate period of time to assess where you are, get the advice and opinion of other people, look at the alternatives, do a little research, choose the best one, and act. And that that's a decision-making process that helps break the cycle of indecision that I see so many people get trapped in. Indecision is a crippling kind of factor. So 48 days, and because of that, Anything 48 Days is going to come right directly to us. So 48days.com is a primary site with a lot of resources there and access to my podcast, blog, newsletter, and other things. And then 48days.net is our networking community. These are people who are saying, I do have an idea, but I need to share ideas and resources with some other bright people who can help me accelerate my own path to success. So those are the two primary sources that people can connect with us, 48days.com, 48days.net. Well, excellent. Thank you again, and uh, keep shining the light for us on the road less traveled. Um, oh, geez, I love that. I, I, I love the opportunity to be that light, Steve. Thanks for having me as a guest today. Thank you for joining us for the Tabletop Inventing Podcast, where we are seeking to answer the question, what is the purpose of an education? You can connect with us on Facebook.com slash Tabletop Inventing or on Twitter at TT Invent. To learn more about Tabletop Inventing, visit our website at www.ttinvent.com. Join us again next time when we will again seek to answer the question, what is the purpose of an education?